The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. The traditional media and partisan politicians on both sides of the aisle have been working overtime to inflame your passions this week. I know, I just finished reading this morning's Washington Post. (sighs) Over the past few days, wall-to-wall television fire, fury, and bedevilment that now passes for governing well, went well beyond the imag- that that could be imagined by any successful Hollywood scriptwriter. My purpose is different. I want to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on what's going on in Washington and Sacramento, and to encourage you to act on that judgment, because that's how we're going to reimagine America. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. Numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, what needs immediate triage, and then how to prioritize the necessary changes. And in the numbers this week again is a thousand, a million copies. That's the number of copies that would that Bob Woodward's book Fear about President Trump's first two years in office sold last Tuesday the day it was released. The question in my mind is, is there a need for a second printing? We'll talk about that. 750,000 American jobs. That's what the Manufacturing Association anticipates can disappear in the next 12 months due to President Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs alone. Big number. 10%. The new tariff target President Trump intends to impose on $200 million of Chinese goods, with $265 billion more waiting in the wings. And the Chinese, in response, have sent their regrets to an invitation for new trade talks. Two serious head injuries just 24 hours before Governor Brown signed a new state law allowing commercial use of electric scooters without wearing a helmet. Four people identified by Christine uh, Blasey Ford of attending a post-country club party sometime in the early 1980s tell the Senate they can't corroborate her story of sexual assault. Fear. Last week, I talked about 
my takeaways from the first 224 pages of fear, Bob Woodward's new book about the Trump White House. And there's really nothing new there except a little more detail in the gossip, right? So so I thought. But listeners said they wanted to hear more about the final 130 pages. The way you will be in the know, so to speak, while saving yourself some money. Anywhere between 99 cents on eBay and $18 on Amazon, $15.99 for the Kindle version, will buy you your own copy of Fear. But here, let me save you some money. The last 130 pages deal with this period um, from the summer of 2017 when General John Kelly becomes the chief of staff in a very unceremonious uh, change of the guard. And that's the week before Charlottesville happened. And the book ends in the spring of 2018 when Trump's lead attorney on the Mueller investigation, John Dowd, basically threw up his hands in the air and resigned. Trump's a difficult client to manage when you're trying to protect him from himself, says John Dowd. And I think we can all believe that. The book continues, those last 130 pages, with a description that's somewhat similar. The president doesn't get more, more reasoned and calm as time goes by. Um, Trump is portrayed as stubborn and not interested in listening to new ideas. He loves to sit in the argument to watch the members of his cabinet and his national security council, etc., have the argument, argue back and forth. It isn't that he's listening because he is going to absorb and take in and change his thinking about the idea. Um, It's basically, and I'm quoting from the book, so it's in quotation marks, if I say it is and you say it isn't, you are wrong. That's the president's position. Gary Cohn goes on and on about trying to convince President Trump that the United States is still one of the world's leading auto producers. Trump has an obsession with the fact that foreign, with the idea that foreign manufacturers have taken over the U.S. auto industry and have um, damaged uh, the competitive advantage of that industry and um, and and its workers, etc. And it's wrong. It's it's not that we produce fewer cars in the United States than we used to. It's that cars are built differently today. There is no such thing as a car made in America. All cars contain parts that come from all over the world. Cars are, the car bodies are stamped, you know, are formed in the parts of them in different countries. And they are assembled in and around Detroit, Michigan, 3.6 million of them, okay? And that is down 3.6 million from 1994. The president's completely right. But what Gary Cohn kept trying to tell him was, in the southeastern United States, we're making 3.6 million units that we didn't make in 1994. So the 7.2 million units that of cars, new cars, cars that go to lots or get on ships and get exported to other countries um, are the same as it was uh, 20 years ago. 
Uh, Those cars cost more, but they are the same number of units. And we build more of those expensive cars in the United States than we import from other countries. So, for example, you want to know why, why Lindsey Graham is always so concerned about, you know, having a relationship with Trump, being able to talk to Trump? All the three series BMWs for the entire world are made in South Carolina. And 83,000 of those have been regularly exported through Charleston and Savannah to China. That market with a 20% tariff is now drying up. When that market dries up, what does it mean for BMW factory workers? It means job losses. On top of the hurricane disaster, there will be job losses due to a decline in the number of cars that are shipped out of Savannah and Charleston. That's also true of Mercedes SUVs. All the Mercedes SUVs in the world are made in the United States. And Volkswagen also produces a lot of its larger models in the United States, as does Honda and um, and Nissan in Texas. Um, and again, parts for those cars are final assembled in those locations, but those parts come from all over the world. And if we wanted to isolate China on China's dumping practices, we can do that. We have the technology to identify exactly to the mill, not to the penny, to the mill, to a millionth of a cent, the value of Chinese metal in each and every car. And we could tax the gajibers out of that without imposing 10, 20% tariffs that are going to cost you more money. Hold that thought because we're going to talk about it later. Okay. They're going to cost you more money as a consumer. And we've got to go take a commercial break talking about consumption. And we'll be back in about a minute to talk a little more about Woodward's book, Fear, and what it means for you. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back to talk a little bit more about Bob Woodward's book, Fear, about the Trump White House and what it means for you as as an individual, as a taxpayer, as a voter, as a citizen, and as a consumer. So Gary Cohn goes on about his inability to convince the president that the auto business in the United States has kind of moved around to more um, uh, at-will work states, but that it's alive and healthy and it's endangered by tariffs. Um, The other thing that Gary Cohn tried to convince uh, the president of is that aluminum, aluminum is an extremely important import for um, the domestic recreational industry. In other words, in Elkhorn, Indiana, uh-huh, where Pence is from, they make most of the aluminum canoe-type boats that are purchased in the United States, plus the majority of RVs, and they're made out of aluminum. And 
Cohn and Pence have had a number had a number of discussions about how do you persuade the president that this is going to be extremely damaging um, to Indiana. And Pence demurred and said he was going to stay out of the tariff fight. And Cohn said he completely understood that reasoning. So this vice presidency, by the way, Pence has, I believe, mentioned in the book four times. I, that's not off. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take that one to the bank. But but you know he hardly appears, which is a dramatic shift from previous vice presidents as far back as um, as Al Gore. I mean the twentieth, the the late twentieth century, early twenty first century um, model since Reagan actually, since Reagan had George H.W. Bush as a vice president, the vice president has had a significant policy role. Pence has been reduced to the traditional role of attending funerals um, and foreign meetings um, where the president doesn't want to go. Um, <clears throat> and that's a kind of 19th century or 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 early and early 20th century model of vice presidents. I mean, I, I dare you to uh, name um, three of the four vice presidents of FDR. Uh, the only one that would come to mind, at least in my mind, is Truman, and that's because he succeeded him. Um, <clears throat> and again, this was not a man who came to that job with lots of preparation as a co-equal in the executive branch. So... Uh, Pence's role is very traditional, and that is, um, uh, I think, worrisome when you have a president in his 70s. The book portrays the president as impatient. Briefings have to be boiled down to one page, actually less than a page. You can't have a page of text. It won't get read. And then you have to explain it to the president because he doesn't really like to read briefing papers. All that said, as you l read the book, you find he has really kind of good instincts. You know, he challenges his generals about Afghanistan. You know, how are you going to win? How are you going to win? And the reality is, as finally stated in the end of the chapter that covers Afghanistan, there is no winning in Afghanistan. There is... A stalemate. There is a perpetual problem, but we don't see a way either out or to win. It's a quagmire. And the president's absolutely right, and he's deeply troubled by that. And again, I completely agree with him. I don't know the answer, but I'm not running for president. Um, and and um, the fact that he understands that and that he's put different. Um, a different general in charge now, Nicholson has left, um, may mean that we're looking for a way to build um, a, a bridge, to build something um, that protects, let's say, Kabul and brings the Taliban into um, the government because you're not going to bring them to the negotiating table as, as a defeated enemy. That's not going to happen. We know how many empires the British Empire, the Persian Empire, and I'm not going in chronological order, I'd put the Persians first. The Persians couldn't get the, there. The Indians in their heyday couldn't get 
um, couldn't pacify Afghanistan. The British, with the strongest army in the world in the 19th century, could not pacify them. And we are well aware of the Russian in- incursion um, and in the, the um, 70s that led to the Taliban. Um, and they were uh, sent home despite the number of so-called Asian uh, portions of the Soviet Union um, they couldn't make any headway there either. So I think President Trump is completely correct to be skeptical, to see it as a quagmire, and to say, how long are we going to stay? What do we do? How do we extricate ourselves? To which there are, at this moment, no really good answers. He also understood that North Korea would respond to a show of power that fear sometimes is a motivator. Um, and, and the president believes in a negotiation, you got to be tough. You got to be really tough until you are not. So far, we have seen him take that approach. He's met with Kim. Kim wants another meeting. But we still do not have an inventory of the nukes. And while Kim says, I want complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, our intelligence service tells us he's still building new bombs. And the greatest fear that our Department of Defense has is not the launch, is, is not the launch of a missile, but the fact that Kim might decide to sell one of those bombs to somebody else. That is apparently the thing that, that kept Barack Obama awake every night of his presidency. And I understand that, that logic. Um, it, it is, it's a real danger. It is also an absolutely real threat to us in Pakistan. In fact, one of the reasons we are still in Afghanistan is to maintain some kind of, of uh, ability to control uh, Pakistan's use of its nuclear arsenal. You can't forget that they have bombs. Um, And their alignment with the Taliban makes that a very dangerous combination. So I think the, the president's instincts in those dramatically dangerous places are really, really quite on point. The question is, what do we do? And there is no effective strategy at this point. There is nothing that's been articulated that tells us how we're going to move forward. That's very situational. And some of that, I think, is because we can't control the allies. What we can control is how we deal with China. And Trump is of two minds when it comes to China. He recognizes that he's got to cultivate President Xi because he needs his help with North Korea. North Korea is completely a client state of China. And there have been quite a number of ideas suggested of how China could solve the problem for us. Okay. Uh, And on the other hand, the president who wants to cultivate this relationship with President Xi, who is now kind of made himself president for life unless he does something really screwy, um, 
also understands that China is a predatory trader. And when it comes to trade, the president is very old school. You know, you're either you're either a customer or you're the enemy. And I'm we need to go I I get again, you know, my 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 heart's with him. It's how do we fix the problem? And we'll be back in just a minute to finish this conversation about China as a predatory trader and as a frenemy. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with fear and what we've learned, the Reader's Digest version. As I said before we went to break, President Trump really does clearly recognize the importance that China plays in solving the North Korean issue, if that issue is soluble at all. At the same time, he sees China as a predatory traitor. He doesn't, as clearly as Mattis has articulated, see China's growing military threat as well. Um, the president really would love to just pull out of Korea. Um, and in, se- in two separate parts of the book, um, President uh, Secretary Mattis has to explain to President Trump that the $1.2 billion doesn't seem like a lot when we're about to have a trillion-dollar deficit, um, that, we, that it costs us to have 28,000 troops in Korea, not including their salaries, which we'd be paying anyway, um, is, is the best bargain ever because what does it give us? The 28,000 troops give, give you and me um, protection they're part of the nuclear umbrella that protects us because if god forbid a missile were launched aggressively well if a missile is launched period um we know within seven seconds if that missile was had hostile intent toward uh the united states uh japan um guam hawaii which is part of the united states um, et cetera, uh, the THAAD missile batteries that are there right now could be deployed to destroy that missile. If we didn't have that capacity in South Korea, it would mean 15 minutes after launch, we would first detect a missile as it was approaching Alaska. And we would not be able to deploy an effective early um, anti-missile defense. So the presence of 28,000 troops listening 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, it is an insurance policy for you and I um, that a North Korean missile, God help us, could not be launched without being detected within seven seconds. So Mattis puts it quite simply in, in Woodward's book, and it's in quotes, so somebody has heard him say it. 
the reason we have troops in South Korea is to prevent the outbreak of World War III. And I'm all for preventing the outbreak of World War III, as I'm sure you are. But that's different from a $500 billion a year trade deficit. The president sees that trade deficit as negative, as, as something that the Koreans should then have to pay us for um, defending what is really the defense of the free world and the United States itself. Um, and his advisors have struggled mightily to prevent him from unilaterally tearing up the uh, Korean free trade agreement that we um, have with Korea. As uh, Gary Cohn points out, and Gary is a pretty astute economist, and he has a lot of, uh, and most economists agree with him. Um, the fact that you can buy a television set for $245, now you can buy even a smart television set for about $300, um, means that you have more disposable income for more types of services. And when you look at the service economy in the United States, that economy runs a huge trade surplus with all of our major trade partners. So our intellectual prowess, um, our efficiency, et cetera, still gives us a leg up on as an exporter of ideas and services, um, et cetera. Now, that's something we have to guard jealously, and we should talk about sometime in terms of our uh, United States educational system. But at the moment, it means that $300 television set means you as a consumer have more money to spend on services in the United States, which grows our economy faster. The more quickly that money changes hands within our own economy, the more our economy expands. And that's always, you know, that's the essence of a global trading system is getting is is to maximize global efficiency in the use of both human capital, you know, smarts. uh, Production capital, the ability to build things at a least cost and how much the consumer can afford to spend is in this economy 80% of our economy. So when consumer goods get more expensive, the economy shrinks and there are fewer jobs and fewer opportunities. So that is why a free trade agreement with Korea is so important to us. It's both part of and, and the, the more trade you do with a country, okay, the more you have at stake in maintaining peace because you need that market, okay? So there is a relationship between good trading relationships and peace. And that is, was the essence of the Marshall Plan after World War II. It has a vital role to play since uh, the 1700s uh, in our relationship with Canada. Uh, we have had fewer border incursions as in, you know, uh, des- desperados running across uh, the, the Rio Grande. Um, in, um, 
since um, we've had a free trade agreement with Mexico, free trade and, and our relationship with China, while we've allowed China to become um, a very potent threat to our economy, that's, our, that's bad on us, okay, our relationship with China leads to pacification of the um, Southeast Asia region uh, and our relationship with Vietnam. Vietnam is, take a look at the label in the, your kid's school clothes. A lot of that comes now from Vietnam. Intel has a plant in Vietnam. You don't go to war with people that you trade with. So free trade is an important part of a safe, sane, peaceful world. And when China's bad, when China is misbehaving, China misbehaves not just toward the United States, but toward the rest of the uh, capitalist world. And so Cohn's, Gary Cohn's idea was that rather than having a trade war with China, we should gather, we should gather with our NATO allies, we should gather with our NATO allies and Canada and our NAFTA allies and our Southeast Asian trading partners, and we should take a case to the World Trade Organization against China for its predatory practices. And China's predatory practices are a whole show in and of themselves. They are, they, they mind-blowingly rip us off intellectually and, um, and, in, and in other ways. Uh, but I think Gary Cohn was right there. And the president is endangering some of his greatest supporters' livelihoods in in a in a early twentieth century in a smooth holly approach to reigning in China. If indeed the Allies, the the Western world, had gone to the WTO with the evidence that had been accumulated, the case against China would be overwhelming, and China as one against many, would have been in a position where they would be forced to make concessions. In a one-on-one battle with the United States, we stand to lose as consumers, and we stand to lose markets for automobiles, agricultural products, and other sorts of goods. Um, You know, pistachios come in from California. Almonds come in from California. And we'll be back. In just a moment, with a few more words about about fear, can't talk this morning, and a little discussion about tariffs in the auto industry. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with just a couple more minutes on the book Fear. Let's just sum this up as saying the book portrays Trump as opinionated, stubborn, unwilling to change you know, want ideas that were formed um, in the 1970s um, and 80s that no longer apply to a 21st century world. He's portrayed as being difficult and highly stressed. Um, subject to fits of anger, easily slighted, um, uh, a, a bit um, or uh, of an authoritarian 
um, who has to be, he's not eager to work through the established processes and he's not willing e- willing or eager to work with, with Congress. Uh, he often says, just get me something to sign. Um, Porter reports that he likes to sign things. Uh, and you remember Dr. Ronnie Jackson? You remember um, uh, his commentary on the president's well-being that was um, uh, chuckled over in the press um, it, it turns out that Ronnie Jackson regularly reported to to John Kelly that he was concerned about the president's level of stress and and suggested trimming his schedule. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how executive time was born. The relationship between Kelly and um, and Trump that started out to be so chummy is absolutely fraught at the moment. Um, it has been since about a month after Kelly took over because Kelly is a general. Kelly is used to order and process and um, and um, calm, deliberate execution, and that's not this White House. When it comes to immigration, it's kind of scary. Stephen Miller is often seen as the heavy, the hardliner. But John Kelly, is, who was Secretary of Homeland Security before he became Chief of Staff, um, doesn't do anything to rein in Miller's impulses um, and is portrayed as favoring enforcement and restrictions on immigration. So we get a lot of that. Um, I will probably put a little book review up um, on, at reimagineamerica.org so you can see who actually talked um, and talked frequently, and I think we talked about that last week, and you can go back and, and read that. But clearly, Rob Porter, Steve Bannon, Gary Cohn, Reince Priebus, and one new name, John Dowd, Trump's first attorney in the Mueller investigation, all actually talked on the record with Woodward, Wood, Woodward in his research for the book. And Dowd is the opposite of Rudy Giuliani. He is quiet and deliberate. Um, He also does not believe, based on joint defense agreements and his conversations with Mueller, he doesn't believe that Trump is in any legal jeopardy. He acknowledges, however, that no one outside the special counsel's office really knows that they play things very, Mueller plays things very close to the vest. And he is the first person who recommended to the president that he not give testimony. And he explained to Mueller why he did not believe it would be in the president's best interest to give testimony. And that's because, and I am going to quote the last line in the book, Trump had one overriding problem that Dowd knew he couldn't, but could not bring himself to say to the president. And that's, you're a fucking liar. Now, I don't think he's as much a liar as he's a man who makes up a story in the moment because he doesn't remember um, the prior, what, what the prior conversation was. So he makes something up and that would get you into a lot of trouble in talking with the special counsel's office. And that is why Dowd resigned. He he couldn't represent the president if the president um, 
wouldn't wouldn't hold himself to yes no and I don't recall answers instead of you know going off on a tangent at the moment so my bottom line is that the entire book still under underscores what Ben Sass said at the first Judge Kavanaugh uh, confirmation hearing a couple of weeks back. And if you go to reimagineamerica.org, you can listen in to all 11 minutes of Ben Sass's commentary. His comments also echo John McCain's last major speech on the floor of the Senate. Congress is, to quote McCain, getting nothing done, unquote. That makes the bureaucracy and the executive to which the bureaucracy belongs way too powerful, and it threatens your liberty. The magnitude of the problem, you want to know how big the problem is? Congress, the word Congress is mentioned in the 354-page in the Woodward book 30 times. I know, because I counted them. It was a shocking to me how you could write this entire book and have, you know, quote one quote directly one member of the Senate, Graham, um, and um, and and have nothing and have a, a minimal discussion of staff work on the tax bill, which is the only thing Congress really got done in two years. That makes the Supreme Court a legislative body. And what we are looking at right now, with my heart going out to Mrs. to Dr. Ford, we are talking, this is a pure, in-the-gutter political battle to the death over the Supreme Court nomination. Because the Supreme Court is now the legislative branch. Because Congress doesn't do their job. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg this week lamented that this confirmation has been, has been conducted just abysmally. Points to her own confirmation by Republicans with about 90 to something. Um, although she had worked for the ACLU for 20 years. But she was qualified and competent. And you get a political Supreme Court if Congress doesn't do its job. Immigration, health care, legislation versus regulation, civil rights and affirmative action. All those things should be legislated, not decided in the Supreme Court. In addition to abortion rights, same-sex marriage, and other similar issues, which I view as civil rights issues. And so... I wouldn't, if I were the publisher, I wouldn't order a second printing of Fear because it tells us what we already see every single day. We see a paralysis in the White House. We see a paralysis in Congress. We see the most extreme members of both parties um, making it, being obstructionists in the legislative process. And in about seven weeks, we got a chance to maybe do some work on that. But in the remaining two minutes, let's talk about the impact of President Trump's tit-for-tat tariffs on just the auto industry. We've talked previously, and again, you can go to reimagineamerica.org and listen to some of the old programs, about the risks to hog farmers 
who have overwhelmingly supported the president. Because if you lose that market share in China that you have that's so important to their growth and success, same is true in Mexico, that those markets will be replaced by other providers and those markets do not come back. So that's permanent damage. And in just the couple moments we have left to talk about this, um, we are finding that um, the auto industry has put out a report that says um, they think that as a result of the tariffs that the sale of automobiles could plunge by as many as 2 million vehicles a year. All right, two of the seven, so that would take us to 5.2. Then we would, you know, that would make the president right. We'd have a declining number of auto workers. And that would cost us 715,000 jobs, $62 billion to, to U.S. GDP. And the already enacted tariffs on aluminum and steel have cost you as a consumer this year anywhere between um, $200 and $240 more for a new car. The imposition of all of the tariffs that are being suggested by the president and his trade representatives, Lighthouser has fought this tooth and nail, but Navarro seems to be winning, will cost you somewhere between $1,300 for a mass production car up to $5,800 on top of the already $85,000 for your top-end BMW. And on that happy note, your Toyota is going to cost you, your U.S. made will cost you $1,500 more with these tariffs. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about something closer to home. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with just a couple of closing thoughts. Um, again, if you want to hear, uh, if you want the Reader's Digest version of the entire book, Fear, then uh, go to reimagineamerica.org um, tomorrow. It may be Tuesday before it gets posted, but it will get posted. Then um, that's because my webmaster takes vacations. Um, but in any case, um, the entire thing will be there. Um and if we take just a moment to be closer, look closer to home this week, Jerry Brown and the state legislature have once again proved to me why we'd be better off with a part-time legislature that actually focuses on doing the people's business instead of making mischief. Jerry Brown signed a new law this week that exempts rent-a-scooter riders. You know, those rent-a-scooters that you see um, on, uh, you can put in your credit card and take the scooter and then drop it someplace else. And um, tourists, you know, they, they've made this a tourist attraction kind of thing in San Francisco and Venice, California and other places. Anyway, <clears throat> the governor has signed a new law that exempts anyone from 17, over 17, riding one of those rent-a-scooters from the state's helmet safety law. Now, this happened. He made the signature. Uh, he also has allowed the scooters, 
which have a maximum speed of 25 miles an hour, 25 miles, uh, I'm sorry, 15 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, you got no helmet on because we, you know, we, we think tourist ladies wouldn't want to mess up their hair, okay, are now allowed to, to travel on roads that are designated for cars at 35 miles an hour. Now, just what could possibly go wrong? I mean, just think about it. At San Francisco General this week, too, there were two serious head injuries. They were concussions and were treatable. But um, the um, physician who was quoted um, does point that, you know, head injuries that result from not wearing helmets can be lifetime disabling. And when they get lifetime disabled, when they get lifetime disabled, who pays for it? You got it. No three guesses needed. The taxpayer. And and if that's not enough, the state legislature wants to protect your hairstylist and other independent contractors from themselves by forcing them to become employees of the salons where they now rent stations. My stylist says it will cost her 25% of her income. Now, help me to understand how that helps her. I get it. You can't. It doesn't. All right. I look forward to Thursday's hearing for uh, Dr. Ford uh, and uh, Justice Kavanaugh um, because I think we've it, because there it, there is no answer. I, I I would love it if Thursday would bring us an answer. There is no answer, um, and if the Democrats think it's a political win for them. Uh, they need to check out that CNN focus group done in Maryland of skeptical women because you know what I heard at the hair salon this week? The same skepticism. So in the remaining minute that we have, I know what interests me, but it's more important what interests you. So if you've got questions, topics, etc., Reimagine America, Joyce at reimagineamerica.org, or follow me on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or Reimagine America Radio Hour because I've been tweeting like a little storm lately. And have a wonderful Sunday and a great week, and we'll talk again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.